Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in sport, helping athletes maximize their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. In this episode, I'm catching up with Sharon Madigan, Head of Performance Nutrition at the Sport Ireland Institute. Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Not at all, Bruce. Good to good to catch up. It's been a wee while, hasn't it? It has. It has. I'm probably scared to think how long it has been. Uh, and especially at the moment, time is just flying by. Uh, hard to believe we've been going through COVID and lockdown for, for almost a year now at this stage. Crazy, crazy. Have have things well? Let's get let's dig in there. Have things changed much for you now over the last year? You're 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 based mostly at the um, the Sports Ireland Institute, is that right? Yeah, that that would be our base, and then obviously we have kind of outreach to the NRC and Cork for rowing. Um, we'd have some athletes based in Limerick, and we'd have some athletes based in um in the uh, sailing centre, sorry, in Dunleary. Um, but in the main, and, and obviously we've got athletes based all over Ireland, but in the main, a lot of my work would be through um, the Institute in Dublin. But at the moment, it's sitting in various rooms in uh, Belfast. <laughs> uh, so has much of your consultation work with the athletes, is that switched to online now? Um, yeah, um, in fact, I was in, in London with the boxers in March when um, the qualifier for, for Tokyo was abandoned on St. Patrick's Day and we came back. It was due to finish around about the 22nd or 23rd of March and we got one boxer qualified at that point and we had a couple just on the on the verge, hopefully. And, and, and that competition will recommence again, hopefully in April, at exactly the same point uh, with exactly the same draw. So um, that's really the last, I suppose, um, camp or competition I, I was at with with athletes. Um, we have I have uh, gone and seen athletes when some of the variations on uh, lockdown lifted. Then we were able to get back into um, some face to face consultations and some lab based work as well, like skinfold measurements. And we were doing some more and more measurements as well, so to look at at reds. So we've done a bit, um, but in the main. A lot of our work has been based online. That's really interesting. Now we might come back to that or more stuff uh, a little bit later on in the chat. Uh, but let's let's start with some basics. So I think everyone understands what sport is. Most people understand what nutrition is. Sports nutrition. What's the overall aim for sports nutrition when you're working with an athlete? I suppose healthy athlete first. Um, to deliver, I suppose, the nutrients and energy that's required to to carry out the day-to-day functions and also then on top of that to ensure that they have enough energy and nutrients for um, the requirements of their training load. Um, and that can be different from from one athlete to the other. You might have a 13 or 14 or 15-year-old athlete who's going through growth, um, who has various different requirements various versus let's say a 30 year old athlete who um it, it's different because of their age and you know stage of development and um uh, and maybe training load as well so um you've got some of those athletes that are competing in various different sports because they haven't kind of decided yet maybe not at the complete elite end of um the level but certainly you've got underage athletics 
athletes who would still be maybe playing hockey or basketball or um, Gaelic games or rugby or whatever. So, you know, you have to take all of those things into consideration as well. So it's kind of not one size fits all. So where would you normally start then with an athlete who was coming in, someone you hadn't worked with before? Um, I suppose where it it's it it'll be different in different situations. So, for example, if the doctor or the physio refers that athlete to me, there may be a history of injury, or there may be a history of issues. For example, iron deficiency anemia. So there may be some issues that is triggered, um, where one of the other members of the team have decided that they think that some specialist nutrition intervention is required. So that would be one um, particular route that we would see some of our athletes. And then a secondary one would be, um, you know, for example, let's say through boxing where there's different uh, key performance indicators have been identified through um, a, an athlete, for example, you know, the coaches have decided that, that an athlete needs to get stronger. They need to be, be able to or gain lean muscle mass, or maybe they're struggling a little bit with making weight and they're shifting around. And that happens quite a bit as athletes, particularly boxers or weight category, are growing and getting a little bit older when they are actually laying down a little bit more lean muscle mass, where it does become trickier to manage their weight as well. So that's kind of a couple of examples of where you would um would you know maybe have very specific um uh, referrals and then you've the athletes that um and and we're seeing less of that i think the tick box type thing where you know somebody says oh i need to see a nutritionist but they're not really sure why um i think we're seeing less and less of that thank goodness and will all of the athletes that are um, engaged up in the Sport Institute, they all have access to two nutrition supports um, as part of the package or is it only on referral? The vast majority of them will, uh, but um, we would work with um, some of our other service providers who would be the lead service provider within um, the sport and they may identify that there's a greater need um, for nutrition and physiology let's say in one sport versus another sport there's some sports I don't work in at all or my colleagues within the team don't work in and then there are other sports where nutrition would be a very much a lead um, provider um, within that sport so it kind of is very different and, and I think that's the nice thing Thing, that it's not just oh you're throwing everything in the kitchen sink and it might not be appropriate um whereas there's definitely needs um has been identified and, and hopefully then we can make a better and stronger impact if that's the case um you've mentioned there a couple of times working within a multidisciplinary team and working with other service providers up in the in the institute um what's what's the day to day like up there how how would you interact under normal circumstances uh, how do you guys interact and 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 how do you manage the athletes um again different sports do it in different ways, but we could have a situation where we would have regular team meetings. Let's say some sports like to go through each of their athletes one by one um, and work through what the aims and objectives are for the year, what the aims and objectives are for the month, what the coaches have maybe picked up on. Um, I think it's interesting because we were talking gut health, for example, is a good example of of a situation where so we're going to hopefully have some significant 
um, transatlantic um, long haul flights to Tokyo for the next um, six months. Um, we, we often find that us as nutritionists rarely will travel with a team. Um, it'll be the physios or the SNC coaches. So what you find is that some athletes actually struggle quite a lot with their guts whenever they're flying. Um, and it's not something that we pick up in our day-to-day consultations, but the other members of the team might pick that up. Um, and the athlete, when they come home, have forgotten all about it. <laughs> so it, it's kind of disappeared off. And, and what we find is that in our, you know, we're trying to put in place some gastric um, gut health clinics in preparation for not only um, the travel element of things, but also um, training the gut to increase intake of carbohydrate in the heat, which is going to be really important and can have some secondary gastric um, side effects, which is quite unpleasant if they haven't practiced it. But we would really rely on um, those members of the team to highlight that as being the problem. And, and we've seen that going forward. So that's quite a, a, a topical one at the moment. Um, physios really are, are the ones that are hands on quite often, particularly around that injury bit. Um, and, and they are the ones that are hearing those conversations around particular things. They're seeing athletes at camp. They're seeing their behaviors and they're able to maybe highlight or flag some issues that um, um, you know, has arisen and, and then we can then deal with that. So it's really, really important that communication between um, all members of the team. And I think the understanding that each member of the team really has a significant role to play in that particular area. And, you know, I think it's the, the value of those skills that each brings. So a physio indicated to me that an athlete wasn't sleeping very well um, recently and, and, you know, another life skills um, uh, colleague, they indicated that uh, there was somebody not sleeping well either. And it could have been because they were actually, you know, taking a massive amount of their their shake late at night, which was causing them not to sleep because they had to break down all the calories that they were consuming really late on. So adapting, I, and I might not have found that out because I may not have, and it just was fortuitous that we were both, all of us working with the, the that athlete at various different times. That's great. That interaction seems to be so important. I remember being away on camps before and, and, and thinking if you really wanted to know what goes on, I agree with you. It's the, the physiotherapist or the massage therapist, they know, they know the ins and outs of everyone's, uh, everyone's business. 100%. Uh, what about, noticing you mentioned there. Let me give them big heads. <laughs> You've mentioned there a couple of times as well about uh, education bits, and I've noticed on the social media streams as well that uh, education for the athletes seems to be very, very important. Um, tell me, how do you incorporate that into the performance kitchen? And well, what is the performance kitchen that you have up in the institute, and how do you incorporate education into the kitchen? Um, so we're very lucky; we have a really nice facility um, within the institute, which kind of came around we see it really as the I suppose you know the way the kitchen's the center of the home um we we try to bring that piece to um the athletes as well because some athletes may be there all day um and it's really and and from a a point of view of actually teamwork it's it's really nice and back before the days of COVID we would have offered um a breakfast which lasted somewhere between eight o'clock and maybe 10 30. Um, so athletes, the idea behind that was that on three days of the week, Monday, Monday, um, Wednesday, Friday, um, 
we would offer uh, food to athletes in an attempt to ensure that they were well fueled going into their their gym session or their training session. Maybe some of them are coming from the pool, get some breakfast, and then they can go and do their gym session. And then likewise, when they finish that session, that some of them would take the offering there as well. So the idea is that we reduce the risk of um, them not being fueled properly and reduce the risk of them not recovering properly as well. So what you're trying to do is add value to the um, S&C program that they're doing and ensuring that not only are you um, adding value to that, but you're also trying to meet their requirements for for nutrition on a day-to-day basis as well. We would love that that was available five days a week. We we hopefully will work on that. Um, We have a fantastic chef who who provides our, our breakfast breakfast now and and we also then tend to have leftovers where there's maybe some soaked oats or um you know fruit salads and yogurts and stuff so that would be available then for the rest of the day for people that might be coming and going as well or we have pots that people can take away um and the idea then is that also from a team point of view um the other wider sports community can really avail of that as well and that they can come in and meet with one of their, so coaches can come and meet with their S&C coach or their physio or the physios can meet together and have a team meeting or some of the other, you know, NGB members like the boards or other admin people in some of the NGBs can come over as well and we can have wider meetings that use that as a, the bedrock really for the communication bit, which I think is really important. So that would be that kind of baseline, what we're offering on a, a on a daily and weekly basis. And then what we can do then is widen that out to allow athletes to, you know, learn how to cook, you know, learn how to develop skills around, you know, what do you cook for breakfast? Um, what do you cook if you don't have the facilities? What do you do that you can prep and maybe freeze? Um, and, and we're very lucky we have a partnership not only with, um, with Boyne Valley Foods, which allows us then to, to develop and, and almost have a, a prescription of food that we can give out to an athlete. So we would give out granola, honeys, jams, peanut butters, nut butters, you know, some of the variety of, of great foods that they provide. And we're, we're able to augment then our consultations with actually food that they can then go away and prep stuff with as well. Absolutely, it's not everything, but it's a really good start. And then we have, you know, we've brought in squads where we can do can't cook, won't cook, or we can develop a bit of curriculum where we can look at, let's say, recovery on one week. The next week, we would do maybe protein, diff- different types of protein foods, and then maybe focus then on carbohydrates. So over a course of three or four weeks, you can build on those skills. And at the end of it, they have actually a couple of different recipes and some ideas that they can put together themselves. I think that grab and go type stuff and recovery on the run, you know, those types of ideas is useful for all athletes as well. Yeah, it seems like there that there's um, a need to make things easy for the athletes, certainly while they're there. Um, take it's one less thing for them to think about so they can focus on their training but then trying to give them the skills that they need when they are not in the institute as well to to ensure that they can cook do you do you find um do you find that that's a problem that's that athletes are unable unwilling unknowing when it comes to cooking and, and and food prep some are some are not so good um and i think that comes with time some of the younger ones 
just not used to it. Mummies and daddies have done that. Um, the skills may not be as good. Listen, a lot of athletes are time poor. Um, so that becomes a major issue. And, you know, you really do need to be, you know, the idea is that this is difficult because you might not have all these things in your, you know, cupboards or in your pantry or whatever, or in your freezer. So the idea is to try and build up the skills. Don't be afraid of, anything to try and give some simple ideas that athletes can build on, build a little bit of confidence. And then actually it grows from there. And, you know, a lot of athletes now are, they're much more willing. Um, I would like to be in the position that we could offer more food that athletes could actually engage in cooking themselves a wee bit more when they're in there. If particularly those athletes that have a lot more time on their hands. Um, but again, that, you know, we're working on that. That's something that we'll build up to. Um, so when the athletes are considering what they're what they're eating, how um, how diligently would you get them to track what type of foods they're eating? Is it do you want them to become intuitive when it comes to their food or do you want them to be very strict on what they're doing? Um, I think intuitive is much better. I think with some of the athletes that we work with, they're very focused individuals. And sometimes that focus on tracking can actually become a little bit obsessive. And I would actually say for some athletes, it's a real it's dangers is maybe too um you know further on down the line but they can maybe become a little bit obsessive about it um and i i think sometimes there's too much obsession around food um and i would like them to intuitively know that it's not good to do four or five hours without eating anything and part of that might be that they feel sick or nauseous or they don't have access so it's a bit of preparation a bit of changing around what they eat so maybe it's not solids maybe it's more of the liquids that they might need to go to in certain circumstances and then really recognizing what is the key nutrients that they need to focus on at specific times I think we have a real um focus let's say on nutrients the macros it kind of drives me a wee bit insane to be honest you know um where people are macro um you know focused where actually they're losing sight of the overall picture which is you need to make sure that your energy requirements are met as well and within that if your energy requirements are met and you're eating a varied diet it's highly unlikely that you're going to miss out on some of the other macros. Carbohydrates can still be tricky enough, particularly if you have a very high requirement for that. And that comes with maybe the athletes where there's a higher or heavier training load or those athletes that are much bigger and much heavier because they require significantly bigger amounts. So it's really important to to teach them that, that you know, I love that saying, a rising tide lifts all boats where, you know, you won't, the athletes become focused on maybe they lose sight of the the key thing. And I think calories are a word that's dangerous. People are afraid of them. And the public image is that we need to make sure and, and not over consume calories. And that can be tricky to manage. So let's go back to something you mentioned at the start there. You said um, you were doing some more and more, some resting metabolic rate studies yeah. with athletes. So how did that fit in or, or what, was the, what was the rationale behind that? So the rationale behind that is we had one of our students, one of our performance nutritionists finished off her PhD last year, Danielle Logan. Um, we had um, looked at REDS. That was the, the overreaching um, uh, area of her research. Um, and some of her projects identified that. Um, so 
REDS is relative energy. Red, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Re- relative energy deficiency in sport. And um, to be honest, it's a significant workload for us in terms of the athletes that we see. Um, and it can come and go. Um, sometimes it's just because people don't know. Other times it's because they have been restricting food or restricting certain nutrients um, and it can have an effect on um, on their performance. In a nutshell, can you just give us a quick uh, explanation of what REDS is? So basically it's um, the, the amount of calories or energy that's available to the individual after you take away activity. So low energy availability is if there's not enough energy available to sustain or maintain um, the functions of daily life, the physiological functions, um, what happens is then that can become a problem over time. And we see athletes presenting with sickness, illness, injury, um, lack of performance, you know, all sorts of different things. In females, it's probably easier to manage or, or monitor um, through menstrual function. Males is slightly trickier because uh, there doesn't appear to be any red flags, maybe other than looking at, say, some of the male sex hormones, like, for example, testosterone. But testosterone is relatively stable, um, particularly in younger males, until you maybe get to your mid-20s and then it can drop rapidly. But significantly, what you see is male athletes presenting with niggles, injuries, and then maybe a really serious injury, which it's, you know, the horse has bolted a little bit then. Sure. And with the females, so... um, uh, Menstrual cycle, lack of... menstrual cycle moving um so you know it moving from a 28 or 30 day cycle out to 60 day back in again and then out again and where they've lost maybe six or seven months it comes back again disappears again that would be a really very common enough um and the problem with that is that a lot of athletes think that's normal and also a lot of their gps and their gynecology um, colleagues also think it's normal because they are an athlete but actually it's not yeah common but not right no and Uh, just because it's common or just because your coach thinks oh well you must be training at a certain level good tick tick that's not actually the case and do you find that that is linked back in then would there be red flags in terms of body composition for those athletes then as well yeah yeah, and, and it is interesting because we have a lot of athletes who present. That's maybe one of the first presentations. Um, and actually, the interesting thing for me is these athletes actually struggle to get their body composition where they want it. So what we have is athletes that are training really hard. They actually are eating very little, but their co- body compositions are actually higher than you would expect. And one of the reasons for that is, is that when you're in that situation, you also have increased production of stress hormones, particularly things like cortisol, um, prolactin. Um, We see that maybe in the bloods, particularly the prolactin, but the cortisol will maintain fat mass. So these athletes really cannot understand why they are not becoming leaner than than why they're putting in all this hard work and they're not seeing the results and the results are that you know for me I see this as a real soup inside is like a soup (laughs) you know it's not this idea if you've done physics a calorie in is a calorie out it's it doesn't work like that because there's this soup inside of hormones and various different things going on and if they're not right 
then it's very tricky to try and get these adaptations to training that you would like to achieve. And I can imagine then that if an athlete was putting in all, the, well, what they thought was all the, the efforts that were, were right, they weren't seeing the changes they were expecting, that could cause them to double down then on the, on, on, yeah, on what they're doing. 100%. And then that's where you then start to see some significant health issues then coming in. Okay, right, that's good. Beyond that then, so be, beyond maybe um, uh, reds and, and not eating enough, are there any other common uh, common mistakes that athletes make when it comes to their nutrition? Um, I think, I suppose, for me, I think one of the key things is periodization throughout the week. You know, athletes are very focused on making sure they have regular habits, um, but their training habits change on a, a daily basis and on a weekly basis, but they eat the same on the same day, every day. So again, they don't understand then why they're fatigued um, after, you know, so for example, I would look at periods of time in the week as well as days of the week. So for example, you know, an athlete, like I'll give an example of a triathlete, let's say who might do a big cycle on a Monday evening, could be in the pool at six to eight on a Tuesday morning and then go to the gym. And, you know, they, they, that period of 15 hours have, three training sessions and that could be the equivalent of six or seven thousand calories but they just keep doing the same thing monday tuesday wednesday thursday do you see what i mean so Mm. looking at how the days and weeks look um as well as what you're eating in those times you know athletes hearing these um stories where um faster training that's the way to go um but not looking at where that lies in the middle of the week so again that particular athlete again, um, a triathlete deciding that that six o'clock pool session, go into that fasted, but yet that's in the right in the middle of maybe over three days they could be doing nine or ten sessions. Um, so actually a disaster. So they come then to Wednesday and they can't understand why they can't put one foot in front of the other. Okay. So, so yes, in theory, fasted training might work, but you need to look at does it suit you and and. Is it in the right place in the week? And what is the objective of it? That's actually one of the questions I, I put out to my students to, to see, do they have any uh, any questions they'd like put to you? And one of them was, what, what's your opinion on intermittent fasting? So I think we have it there for an athlete. What about for the general population for, for intermittent fasting? What's your, your opinion on that? Yeah, I think use it the same way. You know, if you've got somebody who's going out to do a park run or a 10K or something like that at the weekend, that's not really the place to put the intermittent fasting. But if, you know, you're prepping for that on a Saturday and you're not doing very much on a Friday, well, then Thursday evening into Friday might be the place to put it. And then come Saturday or sorry, Friday afternoon, then you prep for your Saturday run. You know, so there are ways that it works. Um, But again, if it means then that you're eating everything in front of you after you've done that, then it's not going to work. Uh, leading on from that, then another question I had from from a student was, uh, what is carbohydrate loading and who might need to use it? Yeah, carbohydrate loading is where athletes would have overconsumed carbohydrate and then tapered down. Sorry, they would have uh, basically had a level of carbohydrate and then in the lead into a race or a competition, they would have really um, increased the volume and quantity of carbohydrates that they're consuming. Um, it was very popular in the 70s and 80s. <clears throat> uh, it kind of has died a bit of a death, I would say. Um, and and uh, the reason that I think I'm not sure that I kind of I'm not interested in it, to be honest, is number one, we all know and the evidence is really clear that 
particularly for endurance athletes, which is where you would see that, a high carbohydrate intake to facilitate good training, consistent training um, is really important. Okay. And then if you can keep that carbohydrate level consistent throughout your training block, your training should come on as a result of, of your fueling being appropriate. And then when you introduce a taper leading into a race or a competition, well, you automatically kind of get a bit of a carbohydrate load then anyway. So it should naturally come. The other secondary bit, which is an interesting one, again, um, based on our work leading into Tokyo, is that the heat will increase the rate at which you consume carbohydrate at. So carbohydrates, depending on what you consume, whether it's gels or um, drinks or whatever can be tricky enough to manage with your guts so you do need to train your guts how to use that so if an athlete hasn't really done that and suddenly fires in a whole load of carbohydrate then there can be significant side effects in terms of gastric symptoms and athletes don't really know how to do it or you know manage it so I think practice is key you know practice what you want to carry out you know how it agrees with you or disagrees with you it can be adapted and changed and I think really work on that rather than and I think you can't beat consistency in everything you do why would you try and do something different in a race when actually for me I would always say to athletes at any level you don't want to be thinking about nutrition on when you're on the starting line it should be the last thing from your mind. It You should be focusing on all of the most important things at that point in time. And the nutrition bit should just be what you've always done. So with a, with a, a good, consistent and appropriate carbohydrate intake, uh, if you taper down your training before a competition, you're naturally getting a, a carbohydrate load from it. That, that That's really interesting. And I can speak from personal experience as well, going back uh, a few years ago now, my first ever triathlon, uh, someone said, oh, you want to have a, have a couple of gels uh, with you? And I can remember getting out of the water, hopping on the bike and saying, oh, this is probably a good time to take that gel. Washed it down and washed it straight back up about five minutes later. Did not agree with me at all. No, no. No. But uh, it, it, it took the... Because the, what the, happens is that um, blood is running, is taking oxygen to the peripheries a bit more to do the exercise. So... Uh, GI transit times are changing and your ability to to digest something that's quite a high concentration probably is is you know it's not as good as it would be you've also got things like nerves in there and and adrenaline and all of these other things that are floating about in that soup <laughs> and then suddenly you fire in a whole load of concentrated carbohydrate it's possibly not going to be good wasn't good for me hmm uh, on that then what about um, the use of supplements with athletes is that something that you have to address regularly yeah it is um, and it's interesting because you kind of um, you know you one of the questions that you're probably going to ask at a later stage and we can probably draw on that is you know what what is some of the things that you've learned over time and and I suppose one of the things that I would say is don't say no right um because that would have been oh no 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 you don't need them you don't need them and and in the main a lot of athletes don't they think they do but actually a lot of the basics aren't right and these i remember giles warrington and myself talking about the sprinkles on the cake you know if your cake's not right well you don't need sprinkles um so uh, a lot of athletes use supplements um, 
in that they think they've covered the basics. So they're ticking those boxes, but actually they're not. So it's actually doing themselves a disservice. Um, a lot of athletes use the wrong supplements. So for example, in endurance or in high training loads, calories is going to be keen coming from carbohydrate, protein, and potentially fat. So a meal replacement that offers all of those solutions might be the best supplement to take. And then they may be taking protein, which actually is only one nutrient and it's not the right one for them as well. So it's getting the right one. And I think, you know, if, if, all of the basics is right. There are definitely, um, there are times and places that they're useful. You need to make sure that they're coming from reputable sources. That's the key thing from us because, you know, there are a lot of products out there that's not, they're not reputable. I could go off today, order a whole load of stuff from China, for example, put a really fancy label on it and have it in shops by the end of next week. How regulated is that? It's not, you know, so you've got to um, be really mindful that um, there are a lot of cowboys out there in this particular field. And there, you know, that that comes with the dangers in terms of things that are in these products that shouldn't be in them as well. So that that, that runs very a close parallel to the anti-doping side of things as well. Yeah, very much so, and it's really important. And we have produced some really nice infographs and, and some education that is on the anti-doping site. Um, and we hope to develop that further going forward as well. So third-party testing is really important through things like informed sport or informed choice. Um, but again, it still doesn't guarantee you uh, that it's a hundred percent. You know, it just it gives you some guarantees, but it doesn't give you a hundred percent guarantees. What do you enjoy most about your job, Sharon? Um, I think the variety. Um, I think the variety of different people, um, different topics. You know, I think you never see two different situations in a day. I think that's quite useful and, and very um, challenging. You know, we do introduce a little bit of research into our work as well in terms of that evidence base. And I think that's interesting at that elite level as well. Um you know, the people that you meet. Um, I think athletes are challenging, coaches are challenging. Um, they challenge me all the time and that's good, keeps me on my toes. Um, so yeah, listen, it's, you know, uh, it is hard work. And, and I think, you know, when you get an athlete to, to buy into some of the things that you're, you're saying, or you can see and they can see more importantly, um, that it has worked, you know, that's great. And for someone who might be listening to you now and thinking that this is something I might like to pursue uh, as a career, how what advice would you give to someone who's looking to get started out? Um, it's interesting because I give I give different advice to different backgrounds in terms of who where they've come from. So, for example, if it's a dietitian that's interested in getting you know into sports nutrition, what I would always say to them is upskill yourself in physiology. You don't have a background in physiology. Um, you don't understand it because it's not in our training. So really, that is really important. You know, when you understand the physiology, you can bring all the nutrition and dietetic stuff that you've learned and you can bring it into that environment and you can apply it in that um, environment. When I have people coming from a sports science background, I kind of say to them, you have the physiology, you have the sports science you don't have the nutrition at the baseline level. And I think really getting a good grounding in nutrition across 
all different parts of nutrition, not only sports nutrition. I really think you can't beat that. And I know that might not be what people might want to hear. They might think, oh, I'll do a sports nutrition, you know, masters or whatever. And and actually they're um they've got a lot of that by they've got a lot of that physiology as well. And and I think they miss out on some of the other really basic um and when I've done interviews for some people from people coming from let's say masters in sports nutrition where they haven't had a, a basic grounding in nutrition you don't have to delve very deeply until you see that there's gaps in their knowledge so that would be my advice it's possibly wrong but um you know i think for me one of the skill set that i bring is i've worked uh, with you know, I worked in clinical dietetics, which brings me into patients with diabetes, celiac disease, gastric disease, IBS, um, eating disorders, all of those um, disciplines that you see within the sporting environment as well. And, you know, you can't those skills that you learn in that the depth and breadth of knowledge that you get in that um, they they will pay dividend when you're working in sports nutrition as well. So no matter what your background is, cover your basics if you want to. I think so. Better. Like, for example, you know, for me, one of the things that I've seen and I would say this, you know, if you you don't go and say, I want to be a brain surgeon and think you're going to be a brain surgeon straight away. And I know that's a pretty you have to do all the rest of the stuff. You have to you have to learn the basics. And I know people want to get to that level. But I would say the thing that will differentiate you from the hundreds and hundreds of others that just go straight to that will be the other skills that you bring with you. And, you know, it takes a long time to be a brain surgeon, but the brain surgeon just doesn't look from here up. He or she is looking at the rest of the individual as well. Yeah, so it might, might, that, might, that route might take a little bit longer, but it Absolutely. will be more productive in the long run. It will, and it's, you know... Nothing that you ever do will will not be useful to you. Like I, when I did my master's or before I did my master's, I did a placement in a company that actually did produced feed for animals, you know, and my job was actually to develop or uh, look at the nutritional, you know, the nutritional analysis of some of those feeds. You would say, well, how useful is that? Well, it taught me how to do nutritional analysis. It taught me lots of different things about you know, the way composition of different things is put together. Nothing that you ever do is, um, will not be um, of use to you. So for students who, on that, for students who might be looking for placement then or maybe looking to get a, a taster of what the job is like in reality before they make a decision, is there any advice you might give them there? Um, I think, you know, it is tricky in the, these times trying to get that, you know, look to um, see if you can get internships, look wider than Ireland, because sometimes there are better opportunities in other places. And I, you know, I'm seeing I saw something recently for an internship with maybe one of the um football teams in America so really keep your options wide open there tends to be more opportunities in 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 America because of the collegiate system and and the support that they have within that as well um you know so I think look wide um 
you look at other things. So, for example, if you're coming with background of um, your your theory and knowledge, you know, a lot of information is now in pictorial and um, graphics and stuff like that. So all of those skills can be useful as well. So communication is going to be really important, too. So, you know, those skills are, are, are actually very useful, for example, in situations like this in an institute where we may have the skill set in terms of the knowledge, but we don't have the um, skill sets in terms of that communication bit and we can then you know I suppose bring you into that knowledge bit and you can bring that that bit into it as well so there are lots of ways that you can um, deliver and help deliver that message as well. I have one last question that was submitted by a student here that I've just noticed so I'll throw it into you. What is the best way to maintain sufficient glycogen stores if you're trying to lose weight? Um well, that's a good question. I think the key thing is don't you, you have to be able to maintain the training intensity and the training load. And to do that, you've got to consume the carbohydrates. So you need to look at the timing of your intake, how hard you're actually training. Does what you're eating allow you to train that hard and that consistent um, and, and look at your recovery as well? So you want to be able to deliver the consistency and the training load um, day in day out and that should help bring down your weight don't try and set yourself too high a target so losing five kilos in a week is not going to be possible and give yourself time and finally what's uh, what's your opinion on certain specific diets for for athletes for say elite athletes vegetarian vegan keto are they making you roll your eyes or are they things that you learn to facilitate you have to facilitate them um and you also have to understand why people are doing them as well. So, you know, you have to get into the nitty gritty as to why. So if the why is a reasonable reason, then that's fine. But unfortunately, sometimes the why is covering up something else. And that I know that sounds, but sometimes some of these diets, whether it's um, reducing carbohydrate, you know, lactose free um, gluten-free, wheat-free, whatever. There's not a lot left. And for me, there are red warning bells going off in my mind, especially if an athlete's presenting with lots of other things. And for me, some of these things are socially acceptable eating disorders, not only in the athlete population, but in the wider population. So if I've established that that's not a risk factor, I've no problem with them. If I feel that it is a cover-up for something else, then I'm going to have to investigate that further. It's a tough stance, but a good stance. <laughs> okay. I think, Sharon, that, that's been a really, really fascinating chat. There's been loads of really good quality uh, bits of information there. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to, to speak with me today. Not at all, Bruce. It was good to chat. Good luck to all your students. It was great to catch up with Sharon there. It's been a long time since we worked together and I really appreciate the insightful yet direct approach to performance nutrition that she takes. With such a broad topic, I felt like I could have kept picking her brains for hours. Here are my three take-home points from our conversation. First up is Sharon's obvious health-first approach to performance nutrition with her athletes. An unhealthy athlete cannot meet their performance potential. Therefore, a good nutrition plan must support the athlete's ability to train and recover and maintain their health. 
So, whether that is planning to fuel multiple trading sessions, sleep well at night, or avoid more grave consequences like menstrual dysfunction or the onsite of reds, Sharon's approach ensures the health of her athletes comes first. Second is to be at the top of your game in sports nutrition, you must have a broad base of knowledge that includes sports science plus the nutrition fundamentals. Achieving this balance might mean undertaking more than one qualification, which may seem like a long road, but ultimately it will make you a more effective service provider. Finally, we have Sharon's passion for the job and the enjoyment she gets from it. I thought this was really clear throughout our chat. If you have a passion for something, then pursue it. Even if it seems like there's a long road ahead of you, if you enjoy what you do, the journey will be easy and the time will pass quickly. And in the end, you will be rewarded with a job that you love so much, it feels like you'll never have to work a day in your life. Okay, that's it for today. If you've made it this far, you might do one more thing and share the episode. It'll be great to spread the word and build our audience. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, then you can catch me on Instagram at B underscore wardrop. I welcome any feedback or suggestions you, yes you, might have for the show. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you in the next episode.